reading is in the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. You can find that in the Blue Bible on page 757. Hosea 11, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. It's spoken in the midst of God bringing uh, discipline upon his people for just cause. And yet there's hope in this passage, and it's verse 1. And verse 1 will surface again when we get to Matthew chapter 2 in just a moment. So Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. but They did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. And now we turn to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13. It's page 808 in the Blue Bible. The first part of Matthew 2, in verses 1 through 12, is after the birth of Jesus, and so comes the wise men from Persia, from somewhere up in that, that realm, and they've come having seen the star, and they, they, they know that the Messiah of Israel has come, and so they enter into... Sorry, little technical difficulties. <laughs> they enter into Jerusalem looking for the Messiah, and the religious leaders, you remember, say, oh, well, the Bible says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And, and all that went there, and how Pharaoh or how Herod feigned he was going to worship Jesus and all of that. So that's the backdrop, and then comes verse 13. Now, when they had departed, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31.15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he, and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. And here he's paraphrasing two prophets in this last statement, that he would be called a Nazarene. All that I've read to you in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God. 
you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light kindled in our hearts may shine forth in our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. And so there are, again, no notes in the back of the worship guide because this worship guide was put together three weeks ago. Someone had to ask me, Pastor, would you please preach a Christmas sermon on that Sunday after Christmas? And so I hope that this cuts the mustard, as we would say. I hope this fits. My friends, do you ever find it interesting that when someone tells a story, the things they leave out? Like that one time when I was about 11, and some neighbor kid started shouting at me at school, and they came all the way home with me, and he picked a fight with me at the end of the street, and he gave me the most beautiful shiner I have ever had in all my life. I mean, that was the way to go, to have that kind of a shiner. I mean, all the colors of the dark side of the rainbow around my eye. It was gorgeous. And so all my friends had gathered around me, and they were on my side because I told them the truth. I told them that this kid just didn't like me. That was true. But then it was during the fight, as the boy was shouting at me and, and, and challenging me and questioning me between slugs, mind you, that the rest of the story came out. Now, don't hate me. But I had, at 11 years old, in all my vast immaturity, had hurt the boy's dog. You don't hurt a boy's dog. And I had hurt the boy's dog, and so he came at me in defense of his dog. There's all my buddies around me who had been cheering for me. As soon as they found out the rest of the story with Paul Harvey, they started cheering for the guy that was punching me. It's interesting that when we retell stories, the things that we leave out, And that's instructive when we hear people complain and talk to us about their story. You have to always have that question, well, what part of the story did they leave out? It's always a good question to have. Well, my friends, most of the retellings of the Christmas story include the wise men. I mean, you look at the nativity scene outside, there's the wise men out there. Even though the wise men probably did not arrive for most of two years, somewhere within a two-year span of time. But that part of the story is always brought into the retelling of the Christmas story. But then most of the retellings of the Christmas story end there. And yet these episodes that we just read ought to be included in the retelling of that story. They're the darker side. I mean, in all honesty, they are the darker side of the Christmas story. Just like when we have communion, there's a darker side to communion. Paul tells us about it when he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. Took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, said, Take, eat, this is my body. Took the cup, blessed it, and handed it to them and said, This is the new covenant of my blood. There's a darker side to the story on the night in which he's betrayed. We don't like rehearsing the darker, drearier sides unless you have an inner Eeyore like I do. Because it just brings us down, or so we think. But as Christians, we... We, of all people, ought to be more daring, more real, more courageous than our neighbors. Bringing out the dark side of Christmas can be a blessing to people. 
to mothers who've lost their children through miscarriage or early in their early days and find Christmas a grief. It can be a blessing to those who are deeply stricken and saddened that they now face for the first time in their lives that they can remember this Christmas season without their lifelong friend and spouse. It can be a blessing to those who are broke and broken. It can be a blessing to those who are all left alone. The darker side shows us that God is no romantic, but the darker side also makes the light more brilliant. So there are three sections in verses 12 through 23 here. Exile, execution, and insignificance. That's the three points. And each of them ends with a prophecy from the Hebrew Scriptures. That's how you know where each episode ends. They all end with a prophecy from the Hebrew Scriptures. So we're just going to run right through them. Exile, verses 13 through 15. And notice how verses 13 through 15 end. It ends with a quotation from Hosea chapter 11. Now, the prophecy that is being used here is not being snatched up thoughtlessly out of Hosea as some some, uh, proof text. It comes with a load of deep biblical thoughtfulness. For example, just a couple of passages of Scripture, but it's the connection of Israel and my son. So when God spoke to Pharaoh, he said, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let my son go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The connection between Israel and the Son of God. Or again in Jeremiah 31, for am I a father to Israel, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And that's just the name of few. So there's a reason why Matthew brings in Hosea's quotation. So first off, notice that Matthew is quietly publicizing here that Jesus is identified with his outcast people. In fact, Jesus has now become the singular embodiment, the flesh and blood embodiment, of the humiliated, disgraced, disenfranchised, and displaced Israel in himself. This promised child, born in a stable in Bethlehem and chased off into Egypt, is now Israel himself outside of the promised land, off in the far country. He is Israel, the elect exile. If you've been in the series through 1 Peter, that language should go, hmm, I've heard that before, and you have. He has become Israel the elect exile. Next, Matthew, in quoting Hosea 11, is fueling anticipation here. If Jesus is personified Israel in Egypt, then you know the rest of the story. What happens to Israel in Egypt? Will they always stay in Egypt? It's not a rhetorical question. No! There's the exodus, right? And that's the point. The exile is about to end. That's the point of the prophecy in Hosea 11, and that's what Matthew is pulling in here. The new exodus is about to begin. It is dawning. The new exodus out of our Egypt 
is on the horizon. We are about to be led into the promised land of God's fellowship and friendship. So you read it yourself in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. God is faithful by whom we have been called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So my friends, if this is the case, this Jesus as Israel is the case, then that means also that the promise to Abraham is coming to a climax. And the promise to Abraham rests squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus as Israel. Well, pastor, what promise to Abraham? Glad you asked. Let me tell you. Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Genesis 22, again the promise made to Abraham, in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Paul picks that up in Galatians 3.16, and he says pointedly, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, referring to one who is Christ. A couple of thoughts as we wrap up this first point. My friends, the only way to be blessed by God and thus to be at peace with God first, which then should (laughs) trickle down into our relationships with one another, The only way to be blessed by God and thus to be at peace is to come in out of the cold rain, to come in out of the bitter darkness, to come to Jesus, to come in through Jesus, who is the door of life. As you heard in the call to worship, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So to be without Jesus... To be detached from Jesus is to be still outside of the garden of God's love and fellowship. It's to still be off in exile. It's still to be out there in banishment, out in the far country feeding pigs and wishing you could eat the pods. It's to be in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And yet, to come to Jesus is to see Him taking the flaming sword that was outside the garden into His own heart for us and for our salvation and to see Jesus bringing us to God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3. Hail, the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail, the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. But secondly, allow me to warn you. This episode here in verses 13 through 15 alerts us that to come to Jesus is not automatically, necessarily, or essentially the easy, plush, pain-free, problem-free life. You may actually end up having to follow Jesus outside the boundaries of your own comforts and ease. You may have to trail along with Him outside of the applause. 
outside of the standing ovations, outside of the uh, social oohs and ahs of social media thumbs up, smiley faces and hearts. You may actually have to follow him into what the rest of the world sees as banishment. It's what the writer of Hebrews reminds us of. In Hebrews 13, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. That was exile. But then verses 16 through 18 comes execution. Notice that 16 through 18 ends with another reference from the Hebrew Scriptures that guides us here. It's a quotation from Jeremiah 31.15. And there in Jeremiah 31.15, Rachel was pictured as weeping weeping for her exiled, disgraced people. And so now she's being pictured mourning over the slaughter of the innocent children of Bethlehem. But the words recited in Matthew 2, verse 18, come out of a context of hope. During communion, I'm going to read to you Jeremiah 31, 15 through chapter, through verse 34, but here's how it flows in a nutshell. You have Rachel weeping verses 15 through 17, and it begins to boil and steam and build up pressure until it explodes with, and I will make with them a new covenant. One that's unlike the old covenant. And in this new covenant, I will bring them forgiveness of sins. And so, the picture of Rachel weeping is in the context of God bringing something new. So yes, Matthew is saying, lament, weep, and mourn. There are reasons to. But the exile is now ending for he, the son, has arrived. The promised day has come. The new covenant has begun. Forgiveness is being won. So if you are weighed down, if you are beat down, if you are broken down, if you are grieving and weeping, Matthew 2, 16-18 tells you do not despair. On the one hand, your tears are being taken note of. There's, there's these little boys in Bethlehem and MSNBC and Fox News didn't even think it was worth picking up and putting it out in the press. And they were slaughtered and massacred. And nobody else talks about it because nobody cared because nobody remembered except one who talked about it. And it was God Almighty. He remembers. Do you get it? Your tears are not going unnoticed. That's one of the points of that whole story. And you know that because it's all wrapped up in Jesus and all of that. And it's there. And it should lift your hearts. Your heart may be broken, but that is being witnessed by heaven. 
On the other hand, the hour has truly begun. Your salvation is drawing nearer than when you first believed. The darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining, 1 John 2. Beauty is being given for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So take heart and lift up your teary face. Hope is drawing nigh. That's part of what lies behind one of the verses in Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. And yet there is something else tucked away in verses 16 through 18. Herod knows that what he is doing in killing these little boys is that he is attempting, think about the Just think about the gall of this. He is attempting to stamp out God's Messiah and thus to snuff out the hope of Israel. That was back up in verses 5-6 through when the wise men come into town and they say, now where's the Messiah going to be born? And and Herod goes, oh wow, the Messiah. Let me call the religious leaders and find out because I want to go worship Him. He didn't want to worship him. You find that out in verses 16 to 18. He wanted to wipe him out because he wanted to kill the salvation of God for his people. Do you get the gall of that? As a preacher, an archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century, John Chrysostom said in a, in a sermon about this some 1,600 years ago, quote, For when a soul is insensible and incurable, it yields to none of the medicines given by God. And that was where Herod was. Incurable by his own devices. Always, my friends, verses 16 through 18 remind you always, Genesis 3.15, always the seed of the serpent is trying to stamp out the seed of the woman. And though the nations rage against God and against His anointed, though they stew in their own juices, simmering in their hate for God, yet He laughs from heaven over their folly, Psalm 2. And my friends, when the cowardly sword of injustice and tyranny and wickedness cannot prevail against heaven, where does the cowardly sword of injustice, tyranny, and wickedness usually regularly fall? On the defenseless. On the unprotected. On the powerless. And very often, on babies and toddlers. This, my friends, has always been, since the fall in Genesis 3, it has always been in war. It has always been in economic catastrophes. It has always been in the encroaching secularism. And it has shown most garingly in abortion. Dear friends, this whole story reminds us that God knows what happens. He knew what happened in the backwater town of Judea. And He knows what's happening right now at the abortion clinic on Southwest 44th Street, downtown Oklahoma City and beyond. He knows. Dear friends, it is no mistake that much of Christianity across the world for over a millennia, in the middle of the Christmas season, On the 28th of December, right in the heart of Christmas, 
celebrates the commemoration of the death of these Bethlehem innocents. This Tuesday is that commemoration. It is no mistake. It is the darker side of the Christmas story, but it is an important aspect to remind us God knows and He does care. The bigger, fuller Christmas story should remind us that God's plan is pro-life. But tyrants and pragmatists will do whatever it takes to get what they want, even at the expense of little children. In the words that ought to be sung at this time of year, just as much as any Christmas carol, a metered rendition of Psalm 2, O wherefore do the nations rage, and kings and rulers strive in vain against the Lord of earth and heaven to overthrow Messiah's reign? By God's decree, His Son receives the nations for His heritage. The conquering Christ supreme shall reign as King of kings from age to age. Delay not lest His anger rise, and ye should perish in your way. Lo, all that put their trust in Him are blessed indeed and blessed Always. So, exile and execution and insignificance, verses 19 through 23. 19 through 23. And that section ends with this paraphrase from a couple of prophets that he would be called the Nazarene. Nazareth was a nowhere town. And so, just the statement reminds you of the humility of God. And if you hear a little echo from the Christmas Eve sermon, score, you get it. It reminds you of the humility of God. As you think about the fact that He's coming to be born at Bethlehem, another nowhere town in all of the scheme of things, and He grows up in a second nowhere town, Nazareth, nowhere in all the big scheme of things, it shows you the humility of God. I mean, my friends, the Son of God enters His own world. Did you hear that? The Son of God enters His own world through the servant's entrance by way of the back door, backwater Bethlehem and nowhere Nazareth. And you see here the unpretentiousness of God. Notice how the Father doesn't save His Son Jesus from the distresses, from the alarming circumstances, from the death-at-any-moment condition. Instead, He saves Him through them. That's instructive for us. God has never promised to save us from our difficulties and trials and tribulations, but He does save us through them. This is the humility of God being displayed. The humility of God for us and for our salvation. I love the way that John Calvin puts it in a sermon he wrote that turned into a commentary on this very passage. And so it's a little long quote, but hang with me. He wrote these words. And I'm a Presbyterian minister, so I get to quote John Calvin, right? That's cool, right? Quote, we must always bear in mind the purpose of God in training His Son from the commencement under the discipline of the cross because this was the way in which He was to redeem His church. He bore our infirmities and was exposed to dangers and to fears that He might deliver His church from them by His divine power and might bestow upon her everlasting peace. His danger was our safety. His fear was our confidence. 
And then Calvin is going to explain what he means by saying his fear. Not that Jesus ever in his life felt alarm, but as he was surrounded on every hand by the fear of his parents, Joseph and Mary, he may justly be justly, he may be justly said to have taken upon him our fears that he might procure for us assured confidence. End of quotation. In other words, my friends, the whole of Jesus' life, from conception to cross to coronation, the whole of Jesus' life was part and parcel of his vicarious atonement for his people. And so as we read about the insignificance of Jesus here, and even of Mary and Joseph's fear and how it surrounded him, and he took that upon himself for us and for our salvation, we we can take heart. And we can believe what Jesus says. That he's sealed in his own blood. For example, in John 14 and 16, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have exile, in the world you have execution, in the world you will have insignificance, in the world you will, not might, not could, possibly, you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. My friends, the dark side of the Christmas story needs to be recalled. Without fear, without repulsion. Because it really does richly bless us. All this for us thy love hath done. By this to thee our love is won. For this we tune our cheerful lays and shout our thanks in ceaseless praise. Let's pray. We're grateful, Lord God, that your Son, that your Son, for us and for our salvation, went through exile, ran for his life, as it were, from the execution, came back and entered into insignificance for so many years. All of that was for us and for our salvation. I pray for any who find this moment, this season, grievous for whatever has gone on in their lives. That what they have heard will will cause them to find hope, to be a balm, to be medicine for their aching, hurting hearts. And for all of us, I pray that you will bring this darker side back to our minds We may remember that Christ our Lord was our sacrifice from conception to the cross. We thank you, Lord. Truly, as the hymn writer said, all this for us thy love hath done. By this to thee our love is one. In Jesus' name, amen.